Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sachs. You know, I am old enough to remember when we thought that August of 2021 would be a return to normalcy. Remember when we thought, what are we going to have to talk about? Um, you know, the news cycle is going to slow down. We're going to have the dog days. And yet here we are. Everything is happening. Afghanistan continues to fall. The president of the United States gives a speech yesterday. I would say the reviews are uh, decidedly mixed. And we are joined by my good friend, senior columnist for the Daily Beast, Matt Lewis. Matt, welcome back. Hey, Charlie. Good to talk with you. So I would say that objectively speaking, uh, today is pretty much close to the low point for the Biden administration. Just I mean, it does feel like uh, it's it's a it's a perfect storm for them, at least at the moment. But of course, things change, don't they? Yeah. You know, um, what is it they say in baseball? You're, you're never as good as you look uh, when you win. You're never as bad as you look when you lose. But um, this, this, looks bad. this this looks pretty bad right now. It does look pretty bad. And we're going to get to this because you have a uh, decidedly um, negative on Biden-based day uh, comparing the Biden disaster to the Trump disaster. But, but I want to get into something completely different because I'm a little bit obsessed with this anti-refugee jihad um, that, that broke out. But before we, 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 we get to that, boy, am I convoluted today. So I, I listened to the president's speech yesterday, and I could go through what I thought he did well and what he uh, he did not do well. But I was also listening to the MSNBC coverage, and he finishes the speech, and the the, the commentators were, I would say, uh, somewhat positive. You were listening to the same thing, I think, Matt, right? So, I mean, it sounded yeah. like they thought it was a strong speech, that the public would, would agree with it, uh, that here was a president who was, you know, standing by his decision um, forcefully. And then they pitched to a guest. And if you didn't hear it, it is it was this was an epic interview. It is an Afghan veteran. Uh, I believe he's a former CIA analyst named Matt Zeller, um, who heads up an organization devoted to getting our allies from Afghanistan uh, out of the country, the people who had been the military, uh, military translators, etc., and so um, I think it's uh, Brian Williams pitches to Matt Zeller. And this is, again, after, I would say, reasonable amount of praise for the president's speech. And Matt Zeller was not having it. <laughs> let's, let's play a little bit of, it, of that. I hope he gets a home to their deaths, too. I, I don't I feel like I watched a different speech than the rest of you guys. I was appalled. There was such a profound, bold faced lie in that speech. The idea that we plan for every contingency. I have been personally trying to tell this administration since it took office. I've been trying to tell our government for years that this was coming. We sent them plan after plan on how to evacuate these people. Nobody listened to us. They didn't plan for the evacuation of our Afghan wartime allies. They're trying to conduct it now at the 11th hour. The thing that they were most concerned about was the optics of a chaotic evacuation. Well, they got exactly what they were most concerned of by failing to do what was right when we could have done it. We had all the people and equipment in place to be able to save these people months ago and we did nothing. I'm appalled that he thinks we only need to take 2,000 people. There's 86,000 people who are currently left behind in Afghanistan alone. We've identified all of them for the government. I have no idea why they, 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 he claims that people don't want to leave Afghanistan. I have a list of 14,000 names right now of people who want to get out of Afghanistan. And the idea that the Afghan military should be blamed for this, do you know how many casualties the Afghan military took in an average year? More than the United States did in 20. When you're not getting paid on a regular basis, when you're not getting fuel, when no one is supplying 
supplying you with ammunition and yet you're still showing up to the fight? How dare us for having to blame these people for not having the audacity to be able to survive a Taliban onslaught? No, no, no. What we need to be doing right now and what I am appalled that the president didn't say was we need to be talking about how we're going to get every single one of these people out. Because let's be abundantly clear. People like me looked these people in the eye and made them a promise. We promised them that in their time of need, we would take care of them. How do you ever expect anyone to ever trust us again if we don't do that now while we can? Wow. So, um, Matt, I mean, this is, uh, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. George Packer has a very powerful piece in uh, in The Atlantic uh, saying that our abandonment of the Afghans who helped us, counted on us, and staked their lives on us is a final gratuitous shame that we could have avoided. It's a, it's a moment that will live in infamy. And I think that a lot of the world thinks of this as a fundamental test of our national honor and decency. And we could go back and forth about whether or not it was a good thing to get out of Afghanistan, um, who's responsible for it. But the failure to get these allies out just seems to be um, almost inexplicable. Your take. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's a lot there. And, and let me say, you know, I, I watched Biden's speech and this was the first time, Charlie, <clears throat> I've been critical of Biden a lot, kind of because it's my job. Um, but up until now, it's been a lot of constructive criticism. And this was the first time that I was actually a little bit pissed off at Joe Biden. And the speech yesterday was infuriating. And I, I think Jonah Goldberg summed it up best when he tweeted, um, you know, Biden's take was like, the buck stops with me and I take full responsibility, but my hands were tied by, by Trump. And this is the Afghan military's fault. And we were prepared for this, but we were caught off guard, you know, and, and Goldberg goes on and on. And, and I have to say just kudos to that guy, Matt Zeller, that you just played the clip of. Um, he brought the receipts. He was obviously passionate, knowledgeable, uh, qualified to make this, this, you know, rebuke of, of Biden's speech. And people who've never been on TV, I mean, it's, he's not exactly like a household name. I'm sure he's been on before, but there is a temptation when you go on TV, especially if you're on with someone like, I don't know, Brian Williams, when they toss it to you um, to maybe if everybody else has been disagreeing with you, there's a the temptation to kind of like soft pedal your comments or like, well, I see what you mean, Brian, but, but like this guy did not do that. And uh, kudos to him for for what he had to say. So, so let me disagree with you a little bit. I, I I agreed with what Matt Zeller had to say about the 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 refugees and and the allies, and I want to focus on that for a bit. Um, I was not as critical of the rest of the speech as uh, as you and Jonah Goldberg were because I did think he he said the buck stops here. Uh, he made the decision. He's standing by the decision. He was rather defiant about it. He explained the difference between um, waging a war against terrorism and anti insurgency. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, I, I can't blame him for being angry at the Afghan military for uh, folding in the face of the Taliban. Now, of course, there's there's another part of that story, which is the, uh, you know, our removal of the logistical support and air support certainly did not help at all. But this issue of what, what happens to these translators and members of their family that we promised seems to me to be so fundamental. And it's the one thing that, that you know, the rest of us can have some say in. And because, you know, the, the, the war in Afghanistan is over. It was a disaster. Uh, the Taliban are in control. And there's not much that you and I can do about it or say about it that's going to influence public opinion. But what Matt Zeller was doing is saying, look, 
We have this opportunity and we must. This is, we, you know, there's a lot of talk about the soul of the nation and you know, a test of our character and everything. This strikes me as very much um, a, a soul of America type moment, not to mention the credibility that we will have in the eyes of the world if we turn our backs, if we say we have no responsibility to these people, who will ever trust us again? So I, I teed that up because my reaction and the reaction of a lot of people I respect was, okay, we really have got to get this right. We really have to make sure that these people who fought with us, who supported us, who believed us, whose lives are um, at risk, who will be you know, hanged or beheaded if we don't get them out. We need to do something about this. But what was really striking to me, Matt, was how fast the right-wing media um, pivoted into a really full-throated anti-refugee position here. And there was about five minutes when it looked like Trump was suggesting that we take in refugees, but you know that that's not going to happen. So let's start with with Charlie Kirk, because some people might have thought this was an outlier. This is Charlie Kirk is uh, one of the genuine deplorables, uh, mm -hmm. uh, very, very, very Trumpy, very MAGA, uh, head of uh, Turning Point USA. And here he is in this clip, and I'm not making this up, saying that um, Joe Biden intentionally lost Afghanistan so he could flood the country with refugees, um, who he described as Elon Omar's as part of the, the transformation of American politics. This is the great replacement theory applied to Afghanistan. Let's play uh, Charlie Kirk. President Joe Biden's Department of Defense will accept 30,000 Afghan refugees into military installations following the collapse of Kabul. Political transformation. Ooh. Let the country crumble. Do you know there's 5 million displaced people in Afghanistan now? This was all intentional. <laughs> Joe Biden let it fall apart to now say, oh, I'm so sorry. I guarantee you Joe Biden's speech this afternoon will talk about refugee assistance and relocation support. Now, Joe Biden's going to be scrambling to make good on it, and the liberal media will love it. They'll say, oh, yes, okay, now I get it. Joe Biden is now fixing his own problem. Joe Biden is stepping up, and he's allowing a flow of people from the Middle East into America. Thank you, Joe Biden. You're such a hero. You're so benevolent. You're so respectful. You're so compassionate. Do you see what's going on here? What, what's, what's going on what's here going? is Joe Biden wants a couple hundred thousand more Elon Omars Elon to come Omar. into America. What? To change the body politic permanently. Replacement. We're playing checkers and they're playing chess. Okay, I probably should point out that Elon Omar is Somali, not Afghan, um, but I, I guess they all look alike to Charlie Kirk. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's the, that's that, that's the point that but this is this is the great replacement theory. Right. We're, yeah. we're bringing in these 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 brown, you know, brown skinned um, immigrants and they're going to replace us. It's all about and they're all going to vote. Right. <laughs> and and it, when, when I first saw that, I thought, OK, that's Charlie Kirk, you know, his blend of pure stupidity and raw bigotry. But it's not a one off at all. I mean, Stephen Miller, the uh, you know former immigration um, Rasputin for the Trump administration, he tweeted out, it's becoming increasingly clear that Biden and his radical deputies will use their catastrophic debacle in Afghanistan as a pretext for doing to America what Angela Merkel did to Germany and Europe. And almost on cue, even as these desperate allies are trying to flee the, the Taliban, Tucker Carlson goes on Fox News and labels them invaders who will be coming to your neighborhood. Let's play Tucker. So we're getting it. And if history is any guide, and it's always a guide, 
we will see many refugees from Afghanistan resettle in our country in coming months, probably in your neighborhood. And over the next decade, that number may swell to the millions. So first we invade and then we're invaded. It is always the same. Invaders say that. And of course, Laura Ingram is goes on and goes, what promises? We don't owe these people anything. Here's Laura. And is it really our responsibility to welcome thousands of potentially unvetted yes. refugees from Afghanistan? They're vetted. All day, we've heard phrases like, we promised them. Well, who we did. did? Did you? Did you? We did. Well. Wow. Okay. So, Matt, this is this has become the thing. J.D. Vance is also pushing a statement saying, you know, there may be some good Afghans, but there are bad people out there as well, and they're not going to be vetted. I... I it is this strikes me as this this is the next big thing okay this is the next big argument it's kind of the old one where you know it's the invaders caravans why we need walls disease you know disease infested migrants who are spreading the pandemic and now it's these invaders from afghanistan i mean you know just when you when you thought these cultural wars were not were were were, were going to subside this is going to be ugly yeah. Well, and then look, I think think of it, though, if you had a conservative show like on Fox right now, I mean, you, you can't criticize the withdrawal because Trump was for that and started it. You you could criticize the execution, but that's kind of boring. It's terrible. Um, well, no, it's pretty bad. No, it's you, you <laughs> could certainly talk about the execution being like completely ham fisted and, and a really debacle. But but I don't think. That is as interesting to this audience as the culture war stuff. You know, that's that's why we don't talk about like spending anymore, right? We talk about Dr. Seuss, and and so I think that the the you know the the part about invaders is is really throwing red meat to this audience. Like, obviously, Charlie, we should vet people um, before they come. Uh, this that should have been handled better, but. Like, I would just say three things about what we just heard. Like, number one, it's obviously a conspiracy theory, you know. Uh, number two, um, you know, I know like – and Tucker, I worked for Tucker for six years. I really like Tucker personally. But, you know, I know he went after Mitt Romney. I mean like, you know, people like Tucker and Laura Ingram, I would say probably had more to do with this than like Mitt Romney. I mean they they had, you know, TV shows and a platform and I, I think we're probably uh, cheering on the Afghan invasion, um, just like almost everybody in, in America was at the time. And then lastly, Charlie, I think is just the like point that you've been making, which is like, like what would it motivate someone to oppose helping people who like put their lives on the line and risk their lives for us? Um, you know, th just out of loyalty. And I think whether we're talking about defending the Kurds, this was a big topic uh, a couple years ago, or uh, protecting these interpreters from from the Taliban. Um, this is about like decency and honor and fulfilling it your is. commitment. And, and if you don't fulfill commitments, people eventually will notice that. This strikes me as a fundamentally conservative value that you would support the people who supported us in a military operation. The pivot to blame the military, to blame our allies. It's extraordinary. And look, I, I, I know you, you and I have talked about this before that, uh, you know, so sometimes, you know, everything is called racist, but the way in which they have 
embrace this anti-immigrant fervor and and that it's all you know let's let's stoke the xenophobia the outrage the fear it's it's clearly their most you know their most comfortable playbook but to apply it to the afghans many of whom saved americans lives uh, the stories that you're hearing from american soldiers who are coming back and saying look uh, we couldn't have functioned without these guys. We made a promise to these guys. I just wonder how that's going to play or whether it's going to play exactly the way the caravan issue played back in 2018, which is that a lot of people are thinking they're coming to my neighborhood, these people, and they speak a funny language and they have accents and maybe they're Muslims. Well, they are Muslims, but you know, I guess it's, it's just so yeah. ugly. I well, mean, and, this and, seems you know, like such a fundamental test of decency. It is. You know, Tom Nichols had a piece, I think it was in The Atlantic, where he, he yeah. talked about like, um, like maybe, maybe this is who we are. Um, and, yeah, uh, you know, I, it, yeah. it may be. I mean, I, I, I think there probably are going to be a lot of people in middle America all of a sudden who are not that keen on, you know, trying to rescue um, these refugees. And, and it's going to be because not because they thought of it themselves, but because of what they're being, you know, kind of fed, um, you know, by by these pundits. Well, also, we're having the this, this interesting debate going back and forth um, about, you know, the role of, I mean, look, there's no question this was botched. And this happened on Biden's watch. Um, he did not have to, you know, follow through on all the policies that he inherited. But it is, it is ironic listening to the MAGA folks on this because Trump was absolutely clear, absolutely um, definitive in wanting to get out of, of Afghanistan. Long before he was president, he was tweeting it out. A month ago, he gave a speech where he said, I began this process. Uh, Biden, you know, couldn't get out of it. Uh, he put out a statement in April saying that Biden was waiting too long to get out. Um, that uh, th that he that he should have pulled out uh, earlier, all of this stuff. Um, and, and yet, there is kind of a, a memory holing of the fact that, uh, you know, Trump signed an agreement that not only committed us to pulling out, but but also released, uh, was it thousands, hundreds or thousands of uh, of, of Taliban prisoners. Um, and, you know, I mean, there was a different David French wrote a piece uh, about this Trump Taliban deal back in 2019. Yeah. He said there's a different there's a difference between peace and retreat. And this is this looks like way worse than than just <laughs> retreat. I mean, it, it looks like you're just handing over, you know, all of this, you know, the entire store and the keys and everything uh, and the credit cards to the Taliban. And that happened in 2019. And you listen to some of the Republican criticism of Biden. And look, and I, I, I agree with you that Biden, you know, deserves a lot of the criticism he's getting. It's really kind of absurd. I mean, th remember when Trump wanted to have a secret meeting at the Taliban at Camp David? Um, on, right around 9-11. Yeah, on 9-11. It's insanity. Um, Trump deserves a ton of blame for this, um, a ton of blame. I do think it's possible that, ironically, um, that if, if Trump had, had been uh, you know, reelected, that uh, the withdrawal may have gone smoother initially. But I just think ultimately the Taliban was going to take over. Uh, it may not have been the... Uh, the debacle, partly because I think the military brass might have kind of slow rolled the things he wanted to do. And uh, and and he may have been there may have been more pushback. Um, I, but I don't know. I, it, it's, it's you know, it's it's just purely speculative. But yeah, Trump, that is Trump deserves a lot of blame, a ton of blame for this. Um, 
But I think one of the things that bothers me, Charlie, <clears throat> is that, you know, it used to be that the Republican Party and conservatives would serve as a check. So whether we were talking about things like governmental spending or whether we were talking about things like, um, you know, unilateral surrender and a, and a withdrawal and um, that the Republican Party would be in opposition, like a bulwark against these these more liberal ideas. And I think that part of what happened with Donald Trump is when he embraced things like spending and he embraced things like withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan, that there wasn't anybody filling that that role as the opposition party. And so um, I, I can't help but think that's part of this story. Oh, it's very much a part of this story, you know, that that in, in order to sustain a military enterprise like this, you need to have public support. In order to have public support, you need to have leaders who articulate the value of the mission. And for the last four years, you had a president who said, this is pointless. We shouldn't be here. We should get out. And so you did have that bipartisan consensus. And, and I think this is what Tom Nichols was was getting at. You know, I think the last time before this all fell apart, they polled it. It was like 70 percent of Americans yeah. were like, yeah, let's get out. Let's bug out because, you know, liberals didn't want to fight in the, in the Middle East. And the Republicans who would have normally been a little bit more, um, you know, forceful about it, they they had been influenced by Trump to think that this was a waste of our of our time and our treasure and, and, and lives. And so there wasn't really no constituency for it. And then, of course, we see these pictures. I, I actually did think that Liz Cheney had a pretty balanced, one of the few people who had a pretty balanced, I understand that just saying the name Cheney is going to get people's hair on fire listening to this, but I, I thought she had a a pretty uh, balanced assessment. She was on ABC and asked about who was responsible for this. Let me just play that. Whether they can count on us for anything. You know, ultimately, this is President Biden's decision. He is the one that is called for this withdrawal, is going forward with it. But this, is, this didn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, right. it was President Trump that negotiated the agreement with the Taliban to have a, a complete withdrawal that was supposed to actually happen by May 1st. So who bears responsibility? Look, I, I think uh, absolutely uh, President Biden bears responsibility for making this decision. Uh, but there is no question that President Trump, his administration, Secretary Pompeo, they also bear very significant responsibility for this. They walked down this path of legitimizing the Taliban, of uh, perpetuating this fantasy, telling the American people that the Taliban were a partner for peace. Uh, President Trump told us that the Taliban was going to fight terror. Uh, oh, Secretary awkward. Pompeo told us that the Taliban was going to renounce al-Qaeda. None of that has happened. None of it has happened. Uh, today, as we watch the Taliban, for example, release prisoners uh, across Afghanistan, there's very real concern that there are not just fighters in those prisons who will join the battle in Afghanistan, uh, but that terrorist groups globally will, in fact, be fed uh, you know, new soldiers in their war on terror from those prisons. Um, this is a, it's a devastating set of circumstances, but the delegitimization of the Afghan government the notion in the Trump administration, the suggestion that at one point they were saying we're going to invite the Taliban to Camp David. Uh, On they, September 11th. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they, 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 uh, this disaster uh, certainly began. Uh, and, and look, the notion of we're going to end endless wars, that campaign slogan, what we're watching right now in Afghanistan is what happens when America withdraws from the world. So everybody who has been saying America needs to withdraw, America needs to retreat, we are getting a devastating, catastrophic, real-time lesson in what that means. Okay. 
So, Matt, any comments on that? Uh, yeah, two things. One, I think that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger have been amazing. Um, I wish we had a, a political party full of Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's right now. Instead, there are literally two, <laughs> two of them. Uh, the second thing I want to yeah. talk about, it, it, going back to a comment you made a, a second ago about, you know, how because Trump and Biden uh, and, and Obama uh, all, all wanted to get out of Afghanistan, there, there really wasn't uh, any public support. And that is true. But I think this is, you know, I, I was noting how like I was watching MSNBC uh, after Biden's speech yesterday and, uh, you know, Nicole Wallace came on and she was basically saying like, like, I know all of the elites out there think that Biden's speech was bad, but I bet you the American public loved it because nobody wants to be here. And, you know, it is true that like around 70 percent of the public wanted to withdraw. But there's a you know, this is the problem with leading by looking at the polls. Right. So there's a, a Politico, a morning consult Politico poll that that says uh, just 49 percent of voters continue to support the withdrawal down yeah. from 69 percent in April. Like the public are fickle. And this is such a big I, I just I guess what I'm saying here is that I really don't like there, there's two arguments, I think, being uh, being used right now to kind of silence criticism of, of Biden um, and what's going on. And, and one of them is like, you're not an expert. And we, we could talk about that. But I think that's a bogus argument to make to silence, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people who are concerned about what's happening. And the other one is like, well, the public wants to do this. The public doesn't want to be there. It's like, well, leaders don't just look at public polls. And by the way, the public, like the vicissitudes of public opinion are not the best way to lead. Yeah, no kidding. Well, it's, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's especially because, let's face it, you know, Americans had stopped paying attention to the war in Afghanistan a long time ago. Most people hadn't even thought about it. So yeah, their, which, which their, in my their, their opinions. Which, in my opinion, is an argument for, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Like, I felt like this was, like, a solution in need of a problem that Joe Biden has dropped on us, on him. So let's talk about um, let's talk about the crisis of the Biden presidency and how badly this has uh, damaged him and what this means for our politics. Uh, but let, let's let's take a quick break first. And when we come back, uh, Matt, I want to talk to you about uh, your piece, because uh, you, you kind of break bad on on Joe Biden saying it's a disaster. But also, I, I think it's worth looking at all the different things that are happening right now, whether um, because it, it, it's this is not an isolation Um and things have turned very, very quickly in politics because remember, like a lifetime ago, like last Tuesday, um, uh, Joe Biden had this massive uh, political victory in the United States Senate. And yet look where we are right now. We will be right back with Matt Lewis. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to the secret podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like the Next Level podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Okay, we're back with the Daily Beast, Matt Lewis. Let me just read you the lead, Matt from a Washington Post article by Matt Viser this morning, which I know you've seen. 
Uh, Joe Biden presented voters with a core argument why he, more than anyone else, was the best choice to replace the wildly unorthodox Donald Trump. He would bring competence. Biden said that as president, he would restore calm order to the vast federal bureaucracy. He vowed to reaffirm America's place in the world. He touted how he knew world leaders, how his deep foreign policy expertise would lend itself to the world stage, making things right and helping to correct past wrongs. But over the last few past few days, the images from Afghanistan have put on vivid display. And here it comes. An inability to plan, an underestimation of a foreign adversary, an ineffective effort to scramble and make up for it. And as Biden demonstrated in a brief address Monday, an attempt to deflect full responsibility. Wow, that's the front page of the Washington yeah. Post. Um, and I guess this is the this is the, the moment that what we thought we were getting with Joe Biden, the candidate, um, is is really under uh, the nicest way I can put it is um, under siege this week. You would go further than that, though. Yeah, well, I thought that was well written uh, and well yeah. said. Um, and look, I mean, there was a time when Joe Biden was kind of seen as as certainly by conservatives um, as a bit of a of a joke. And I, I think that Donald Trump was just so bad, so chaotic, so evil that you know by comparison we. A lot of us kind of wanted to believe that that Joe Biden had like changed, and I, and I do think that as he got older, um, he, you know, he 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 in the campaign and in, in the campaign he was just perfectly cast to be this this contrast to to Donald Trump. But we can't forget that like Joe Biden has been wrong about every like foreign policy decision. I, I had a column the other day where I talked about like he opposed the Persian Gulf War which, by the way, was a great success, but later reversed his, his decision and criticized George H.W. Bush, saying that Bush should have gone all the way to Baghdad and, and taken out Saddam Hussein, which would have been, as we learned later, a disaster. Then he supported the Iraq war before opposing the surge. Um, <laughs> then yeah. as vice president, he opposed the raid that killed Osama bin Laden, which brings us to Afghanistan, right? I mean, like, there was not a lot of reason to believe that Joe Biden was actually going to be this steady hand, at least when it comes to foreign policy. And the idea that, like, the adults are back in charge, I uh, wanted to believe it. But, like, the last time I heard that, it was when George W. Bush took over from Bill Clinton and, and Rumsfeld and that. Cheney, and Rumsfeld and Cheney came in office. So. So you you write in your column today, it is amazing how quickly Biden's aspirations appear to be falling apart. With the infrastructure bill passing the Senate less than a week ago, there was some <laughs> optimism. But hot Joe summer is already a mess and winter is coming. Winter is coming. So you're a you're a Game of Thrones guy, aren't you? Not really, but I think that is darn good writing, if I say so myself. Okay. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. Okay, even if after 20 years the American public is indifferent to the plight of Afghanistan, or will be by the time 2024 comes around, I have been documenting looming problems like inflation, violent crime, and out-of-control border. Problems Biden initially dismissed as transitory or cyclical. There was also his independence from COVID-19 remarks that with the rise of the Delta variant, feel like a wildly premature mission accomplished uh, declaration. And you basically say, so far he's kind of been given a pass by the media and the public, but the you know what you know watching what's happened in afghanistan 
it's it's a blow to his credibility on all of those other issues as well. And I think that's the that's that's the key point, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Um, and it, it's you know, we don't know how things are going to turn out. However, there was a time when Joe Biden seemed to have the wind at his back. So first of all, he's taking over and inheriting the presidency from a horrible person who <laughs> was a horrible president. Right. So right away, um, by contrast, you look good. You look better maybe than you are. Um, it felt like COVID was, you know, maybe not in the rear view, but but we were poised to uh, on Biden's watch to kind of go past it. Things are going to open up again. Vaccines are going to be rolled out. Um, and there was talk about him being like the next FDR or LBJ doing you know this big stuff. Uh, that sort of slumped a little bit. I think there was a recalibration uh, because we started hearing about things like inflation and crime and the border, which I think Biden very cavalierly dismissed, I think, in, you know, uh, wrongly. Um, but I think that there was a sense like, OK, you know, Biden, maybe he's not going to be FDR, but he's going to get this this bipartisan infrastructure thing passed. Um, and it'll at least be, you know, a feather in his cap. Uh and now I think we are at a point where when you when you look at what's happening in Afghanistan, which, you know, I'm sorry, it does look like the fall of Saigon. When you look at what's happening with covid uh, in the case of the Delta variant um, and, and we don't know where that's going to go. And then you throw on the stuff that I mentioned, the inflation still looming, uh, violent crime uh, and the border, like all of a sudden it's not over yet. But this is a guy who does have a. Uh, uh, you know, he's got some challenges, let's just say, facing him. No, it did. I, I think I wrote last week, you know, Biden agonistes that it felt like his presidency was sort of at the hinge of fate point with all of those things coming together, um, any of which poses a significant challenge. Um, you know, we've seen what inflation can do to a presidency, not to mention crime and the the border. And I, and I guess the, the question is, you know, how much uh, political um, will does he have to, to, to deal with some of these things? You know, for example, you know, political playbook reports that one of the reasons why they were not more aggressive in getting the refugees out of Afghanistan was they were afraid of exactly the kind of, uh, you know, Republican blowback that you're seeing now. Um, but in light of, you know, he's, he's already he's already on the defensive on the border, did not want to have yeah. thousands of refugees. So, it, you know, I think a lot of this raises questions about the decision making. Um, and this is an opportunity to recalibrate. You know, there, there's been a certain triumphalism and complacency on the left that because they are not Donald Trump that, you know, just simply, you know, push everything through um, because they they have that, you know, that wind at their back. I, I don't think that survives this week. And that may not be a bad thing. No, it would actually, confidence is, you know, you know, yeah, you know, so every, every, every presidency begins with, uh, with people thinking that the rules don't apply to them anymore. Uh, right. and, and then that they've, they've, you know, they've cracked the code and they've figured, you know, something new out. Um, and so getting over that quickly, I, I think is successful. I, I, I do wonder though, and I have to say again, look, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that I am, this is very anecdotal, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm like indicative of a lot of Americans out there. But yesterday during that that speech was kind of the first time that I'm like, oh, I feel like a Republican again. Like, like, like I don't like this Joe Biden. And and before I'm like, I kind of felt bad writing bad things about him. He seems like this nice guy, and now I'm like, oh, now he's blaming everyone else. Like, 
and 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 I saw again totally anecdotal, but I saw people on Twitter. Um, yeah, but Twitter's not real life. It's not. Man. No, again, but but these are people. It's very self selective, but real people, um, not bots, who basically said like, I'm not going to. You know, I voted for him before. Basically, these are never Trump uh, conservatives. I'm not going to vote for him again. When you look at that Pew survey that came out a couple months ago that showed that that Biden actually won the election um, by virtue of of um, not not by virtue of of turning out like the Obama base in large numbers, but by by doing better among white men, for example, than most Democrats do. Um, again, I, I don't know if any one incident completely erodes that, but this election in, 26, in 2020 was still pretty close in three states, no, Charlie. It, so it, all it these things, I look, I it's not crazy to think that Donald Trump could get back in there with, with this stuff happening. Well, see, that's the that's the scary thing. And I think you make this point in your, in your, in your column. I mean, you know, what what's worse than, you know, a failed presidency? Well, it's a failed presidency replaced by another failed presidency <laughs> or, or even worse than that. So, you know, um, what have we done to deserve uh, Trump, Biden replaced again by Trump? Um, so and and then that's that's the concern. It's, it's why I mean, I root for Biden, not because I agree with everything that he is doing, but because he is the bulwark against the return of Donald Trump, um, because that 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 uh, that replacement is even worse. OK, so right before we started this, we were talking about um, something that you had written that feels like a lifetime ago, mm-hmm. but which is still relevant. I mean, the world goes on. We know the big story today is that the administration is going to recommend a third um, shot, uh, a, a third vaccine for uh, certain vulnerable patients uh, after eight months. Um, I'll take it if it's if it's offered. I think that's an, that's a no brainer. But we continue to have this ongoing culture war in places like Texas and Florida and uh, South Dakota about masking. And you had a devastating piece about Ron DeSantis's approach to this. So talk to me a little bit about that, because that's not changing and that's not getting any better, especially with school reconvening and the number of teachers down in Florida who are contracting COVID and are dying of COVID while the governor is waging this massive campaign against uh, masking rules and apparently had a press conference yesterday where he's pushing Regeneron or something like that. So what is what is Ron DeSantis doing right now? <laughs> well, it's funny, yeah, Charlie, I was originally going to come on here and bash Ron DeSantis yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> and attack yeah. Republicans, which I'm perfectly happy to do, especially when they deserve it, as they almost always do. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the piece was basically about how, um, you know, Ron DeSantis and, and, and Greg Abbott also are basically, you know, telling local communities that they that the local communities cannot make a decision uh, to have, you know, to to require students to wear masks. Um, and in the case of DeSantis, he later backed off of this. But in the case of DeSantis, he actually was threatening to, uh, you know, punish local school board uh, and administrators who defied him uh, by fining them or withholding their pay. Um, and I wrote a piece basically making the point that like, look, DeSantis may legally uh, be entitled, may have the right to uh, to do this sort of bullying tactic that he's engaged in. And I also think it's performative, obviously, for, sure. for political reasons, but sure. it's certainly not conservative. And I went through and uh, cited, you know, Paul Ryan talking about subsidiarity uh, about how, quote, government closest to the people governs best. 
I talked about um, uh, Hayek uh, and, and warning about the you know the knowledge problem and, and central planners and and I even quoted some Edmund Burke in there about the little platoons and and basically I think made mm-hmm. the case that that what Ron DeSantis is doing uh, is a whole lot of things but it's not. It's not conservative what he's doing. Well, and again, for people, because we, we often have a hard time defining what conservative is. And, and for our listeners, you know, this this concept of, of subsidiarity was also very was always very important. I think it came from uh, Catholic social thought, which essentially the argument is you correct me or if you can put it better, is is that is that decisions should be made as close to, you know, as close to the ground as possible. The, the, we, you know, local control or states' rights, you know, may seem like these slogans, but the basic principle of subsidiarity is that the people who are closest, um, you know, or most intimately involved um, are best positioned to make the decision as opposed to centralized planners, you know, you mentioned Hayek, you know, may, you know, think they understand all the problems, but life and the world is so complex and the planners often don't know as much as they think they know, which is why conservatives had up until five minutes ago been (laughs) very suspicious of central planning, top-down management, and why they thought that local communities, local little platoons should, you know, churches and school districts, et cetera, should be able to make decisions about their own lives as opposed to somebody sitting in, say, you know, on the throne in Tallahassee. Yeah. Which is seven hours away if you're in Miami. I mean, it's it's yeah. you know it's a big state, and so it's not it's not the same as like the federal government telling uh, you know every small community what to do. But it's still far removed from you know, it, it, and it's reasonable to believe that that the situation on the ground in different parts of a big state may actually be different. It's it's possible to believe that just that the culture uh, is different. And, and, and so, uh, I think this was a, uh, a big problem. It's not conservative. Um, and I also think it's, um, it's bullying. I think it's also just indicative of a guy who is, is prioritizing, uh, winning the, the 2024 Republican presidential primary over actually serving, uh, as a good governor of his state. Well, the other thing that strikes me is that conservatives used to, um, you know, base their beliefs on what they called ordered liberty. They had this vision of ordered liberty, which is two parts, which is, yes, you are free, but it's balanced by certain responsibilities to the community so that you would balance rights with responsibilities. I mean, how many conversations did we have about this that merely because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that it is the right thing to do? I cannot tell you how many times yeah. I had that argument when I was when I was on on the radio. And yet this whole argument about masks, you know, it seems like suddenly the conservative movement has thrown out all of those balancing tests of ordered liberty. And it's uh, essentially the spoiled, petulant adolescent. I don't want to. I just, yeah. you know, my my freedom trumps any danger to the rest of the community and I'm going to do whatever I want. So somehow freedom became not just this 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 sort of out of control spiraling narcissism. And it's embraced yeah. by people like Ron DeSantis. It totally is. And I have to say, Charlie, I just I that's a very Burkean, you know, ordered liberty. I, I love that um that formulation and, and I think it's just maybe the best, most um the best way to describe like my conservative philosophy. And, and I think you get either of those two things out of whack, you know, order is, is important, right? We can't have a society if, if we're in chaos, uh, if it's, 
you know, if, if there's violence. Um, so you need order, right? But but not not authoritarianism, right? You, you need to, we also need to preserve freedom and liberty. And I think like if you fetishize either of those two things, um, and, and if you if you get out of balance with either of those two things, then, you know, you have anarchy or or tyranny, like uh, one or the other. Right. And so we really need to balance those. It's, it's I would say it's prudent to balance those. Prudence is a conservative thing. Um, and I think that uh, that what we're seeing in the case of, of people like DeSantis is um, is, is, you know, that that this is getting out of whack uh, a little bit too far toward the like. Hey man, uh, you know my body, my choice. Um, well, I'm pro life, so that's not really you know that's not a really good. Wow. Like, I, I think you should wear a mask uh, if you know if appropriate. Well, th- that's also an incoherent argument because you know when they when they say my, my body, my choice, what they're doing is they're they're trolling pro choice individuals. But trolling is not a principle, right? So um, one of the understandings of the pro life movement have been is that we prioritize life over um, you know sometimes o- over over freedom, right? So again, they're taking a position that they don't actually yeah. believe in. I mean, yeah. clearly and, they, and don't believe, they don't believe that. So. Everybody, everybody pretty much are hypocrites on this right now. Um, exactly. And, and I think, you know, it's funny because like, um, you know, the my body, my choice thing illustrates hypocrisy um, in the case of, of progressives who want to mandate masks, but, um, but yeah. are pro-choice. And I think it illustrates hypocrisy on conservatives who are pro-life, but, uh, but, Hey man, do whatever you want with the mask. If you spread, you know, if, if, if you don't wear it and you spread a virus like that, that's too bad. And, you know, there's another example too, Charlie, of this hypocrisy, which is the, um, uh, the thing about forcing someone to bake a cake, right? You know, conservatives used to say like, um, I don't think you should, you know, force a, a you know, a baker, a, a, business, right. a baker to, to violate his rights of conscience and, and bake a cake. But yet Ron DeSantis thinks it's okay to force you know, uh, cruise ships or cruise cruise lines uh, to not have vaccine uh, passports, so-called vaccine passports. So, yeah, it's there's a lot of of uh, hypocrisy here. Yeah, it, it's almost I'm not sure even, you know, going past hypocrisy to just the complete lack of any principle whatsoever. You know, everything is like every every idea, every argument is simply a cudgel. I and mean, you, you pick yeah. it up uh, depending on who you want to bash um, and you're prepared to drop that cudgel and turn it around no matter what. OK, I'm not being somewhat opaque, but it's just well, it noticing not, how it be- people. Yeah. And it becomes nihilistic. Right. I mean, at right. some point we don't. We don't believe in anything. We don't believe we're not honorable. We don't have principles. It's it's really just about power. And that's a horrible position to be in. And I have to say, not to take a cheap shot, but I think that Donald Trump, this this, this kind of started with Donald Trump, I think. Well, no, that's, that's, that's not a cheap shot. Um, and it would be comforting to think it started with Donald Trump, but obviously it was a pre-existing condition. And <laughs> yeah. I always, I, I always think of, you know, people as having, you know, listening to the better angels of their nature or, you know, their, you know, their, their, their more, um, you know, the, their darker impulses. And what Donald Trump did was he just opened the doors of, you know, all that, that Pandora's box of all the darker impulses said, you don't yeah. have to be decent. You don't have to have character. You don't have to tell the truth. Uh, you don't have to be kind. Um, y- you don't have to uh, ever admit error. You know, um, you can just uh, be as nihilistic as possible as long as you're punching the right people in the face. And that has spread from him. I mean, he, he gave permission 
And now you see, I mean, if he if he dropped over dead tomorrow, that legacy would still exist because that culture's out there. It's it's like it feels like it's been loosed. Yeah. And um, well, but there've always been I mean, there've always been like sort of situational things like whichever party um is the minority likes the filibuster, right? And whatever parties, right, right. like that's always been like, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. But I do think that at least for most of my lifetime, there was like do- conservative dogma um, and, and that we were pretty principled. And, and you know, uh, and, and I and I think that now it really is just about in the wake of Trump, it really is just about power. Um, so, yeah. And that's the world and that's the world we live in. Matt Lewis, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>